Welcome back to Careers Explained. This week, we talk with Dr. Peter Gray, who has been a professor of anthropology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas for 17 years. He received his bachelor's degree from UCLA with a double major in anthropology and environmental studies and his PhD from Harvard University in biological anthropology. Welcome, Dr. Gray, and thank you for coming on today. Glad to be here. So before we get into your current role, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your education? So I am uh, Peter Gray. I have um, been a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas since 2005. Uh, I earned a PhD in biological anthropology from Harvard. I was an undergrad at UCLA, uh, but I am also in the process of exiting my role as a professor. So this is going to be an interesting conversation, Heidi, in that I'll be talking about what it is like to be a professor from the vantage of someone who is leaving intentionally that role after many years. Uh, so this will talk through, this, this enables me, I think, with a view of truly some strengths and weaknesses I see in this role as those of you listening contemplate what this role might be like. Awesome, and so can you describe your career path from just a brief overview of from your degrees at UCLA and Harvard to where you are now as a professor? When I grew up in Colorado, particularly Colorado Springs. My mom was a second grade teacher. My dad worked in the dairy industry, just like his dad, like his dad, like his dad, like his dad. And my dad was a sales manager. Somewhere coming out of that stew is a son who did well in math in high school on the SAT, who thought maybe I'll go into civil engineering. So I, I started at UCLA thinking I'm going to be a civil engineer start taking those classes my freshman year at UCLA and think, oh, I don't know about this. And then freshman year in the spring, I took a human evolution class. It was one of those large 500 person lecture classes that was magnetic in terms of what it drew out of me, like thinking about how humans evolved, who we are, where we might be going. And my sophomore year, I changed majors, ended up studying abroad in, in Kenya and also in Costa Rica for semesters each. And um, that was the start of, after I changed majors to anthropology and also geography slash environmental studies from civil engineering my sophomore year, that was the start of a trajectory that would make me think I'm gonna become a professor or at least I'll aspire to as an undergrad because I see such roles modeled in front of me, but I literally did no research on what that might actually look like. So then without that research, what inspired you about the idea of being a professor at the time? So I think there's some degree of my mom's impact as a second grade teacher on me. That inquisitive mindset was encouraged and never discouraged. So I'm sure that that is an element somewhere in there. And seeing some of the professors I had at UCLA as an undergrad, they were just inspiring people as instructors, as curious people, as people doing interesting things, as people sparking my own thoughts about what I thought were interesting things. So I see all of that modeled in front of me and I'm kind of drawn to that. Of course, what I don't see is that this is a, a, a non-representative sample. What I don't see is that there are lots of other people who might've aspired to those same kinds of roles who didn't make it. And I have no idea what they're doing in those other life courses. So for anyone thinking through what career path planning looks like, this is always the case that you're seeing perhaps representatives in front of you of certain industries, but you don't know about folks who might have aspired to those roles and never uh, uh, never landed in them. Uh, but but all said, those are some of the processes that I think 
shaped what drove me to be interested in being a professor. Gotcha. And so when you talk about some people aspire to become one of those professors or one of those roles in general, but don't make it, what was the process like for you from deciding that you were interested to actually attaining that role as a professor? So I, as an undergrad, I took lots of classes. I am a very curious person. So I ended up double majoring, had lots of credits. The, the school counselors were like, like their eyes were bulging, I think, <laughs> uh, after seeing, you know, changing majors and then double majoring uh, two semesters abroad and taking also just some other random classes. Uh, put it all together. I, I did a lot of exploration as an undergrad trying to just enjoy the space of that undergrad student world of possibility in courses and extracurriculars alike. And um, through that, I also did the, the honors undergrad program at UCLA in anthropology. That meant I had over uh, a four year or four quarter, so they're on the quarter system rather than semester system, a four quarter program with which you're partnered with a primary mentor and secondary mentors to do honors level research. And that no doubt too was a huge influence on my future planning. Uh, so I did, uh, I, I undertook that research with my primary advisor uh, named Rob Boyd, who's now at ASU. And at the time I, I just thought this is really cool work. I, I really like him. He's a really intellectual person. I didn't realize how world famous he was. You know, it's just, uh, and um, I, I just benefited tremendously from that mentored undergrad research uh, experience too in the honors program in a way that I think helped set the stage for preparing and being really competitive when I applied to PhD programs. Um, so I did finish my undergrad degrees. I decided to take a year off. I took a gap year, as it turns out. I thought, I'm just going to try to make sure that I want to go to grad school because you're not going to be a professor unless you go to grad school. So right. there is that element. You can't go from your bachelor's degree at Davidson College or wherever you are to yep. um, a professor of something or others. Like some community college roles, perhaps with a master's degree, you might uh, serve as a lecturer, let's say. Uh, but those are even getting so competitive that increasingly those are roles going to PhDs rather than master's students too at a community college right. context. Um, so I, I took a gap year. I traveled with a friend backpacking in Europe. I spent the fall as an intern at a newly created national park for embarking on grad school. And amidst all of that, of course, I was applying to grad programs. Mm. Uh, I got into the, the best programs to which I'd aspired. So I had awesome choices and ended up choosing Harvard. And so once you are in your PhD program, you're graduating, what are the next steps for someone wanting to become a professor? Things though I was thinking of in that era were, okay, what am I gonna do? As I was nearing the end of my PhD and I hadn't honestly given a whole lot of thought in what was a six year uh, PhD program. So I got a master's along the way. So it, within six years, I got a master's in route to earning a PhD, but it wasn't until I'd say more or less the start of my sixth year and last year as a PhD student that I thought, what am I gonna do next? Uh, I think I wanna be a postdoc doing, I was doing work on testosterone and male social behavior. I think I wanna do a postdoc in a world in which we give men testosterone so we can experimentally evaluate its effects rather than the kinds of correlational naturalistic study designs I was employing at that time and anticipated likely continuing if I were to be a professor. So I thought I want to be a postdoc in a clinical space to causally test effects of testosterone. Uh, did some research. I cold called, cold emailed uh, one of the world's leading experts 
Uh, and it turns out he had a position with NIH funding for a social scientist to join his team in Los Angeles. So I ended up doing that as a postdoc for two years, joining him, his team. And that could be its own side story. But uh, that was uh, part of then in that two-year postdoc role, also preparing for and applying for faculty jobs during that time. And that was when I was really learning like, oh my God, this is a lot more competitive than I'd ever thought. I had not realized how competitive this is. If I'm coming out with the preparation and support that I have, and I'm still finding this incredibly competitive, how was I not thinking about this stuff much earlier in the process? In a way now with podcasts like this and resources and social media, all undergrads, much less grad students should be aware of. So you had some fruitful cold calling, got a great post-fellowship role, which probably set you far ahead from others applying to similar professor roles. So what's the typical interview process like when you graduated or when you finished your postdoc and then found places you wanted to teach? What is that process? Uh, the, the interview process can vary. So here's here, here's some stuff to think about. So what does the role of professor mean? It's yep. not a monolithic thing. So some of the variety of that role of professor can include things such as, are you at a, a, a so-called R1, research one, like research intensive public or private university, think of NC State. So since we're in North Carolina, think of NC State, Duke, uh, University of North Carolina, think of Appalachian State, which I, I'm guessing is probably R2. Um, UNC Charlotte, I think is R2, but probably on a destination to be R1. Uh, so for these kind of research intensive, large institutions, the professors have heavy expectations typically of research if they're hired as tenure track faculty roles. Mm -hmm. If they are hired increasingly in a role that is teaching intensive, even at such institutions, or also teaching intensive roles at say community colleges, they might have expectations less on research and more on teaching in which maybe they're teaching four classes, maybe even five classes per semester to lots of students, but the expectation is on teaching quality. That's where the emphasis and hiring focus uh, is on. Increasingly, we're also seeing a shift to more online courses. Yeah. So, you know, 20 years ago, this was all in person. 10 years ago, it was mostly in person. Nowadays, you know, a place like Davidson and small liberal arts colleges has gone back to the bread and butter, largely of specializing in the in-person intensive student support kinds of uh, intimate courses and the teaching in turn within say a small liberal arts college like Davidson would also select for really good teachers, but who are also really productive at research, but usually face-to-face, -face, whereas many regional universities like R2 universities are gonna expect your ability to teach online as well as in person, even if they still expect a lot of research productivity too. So Heidi, to your question of, of what does this hiring process look like to for professor roles, part of the answer is it depends on what you're applying to. Okay. And that helps give you a feel for the variety of professor roles that are out there and in turn, the ways in which the hiring process will differ. So to give some illustration, um, hiring committees that I've been on as a faculty member have included looking at UNLV hiring processes. And UNLV is now R1, it was R2 when I started. So it is now one of the more research intensive universities, just like you know most state large yeah, institutions are. Um, and so what matters most is research. 
So for faculty hire, you know, for the faculty hiring process, you need to show that you have been able to develop a successful research program. Can you train students like undergraduate and graduate students if you have graduate level training? Davidson's not thinking about grad training, but right. we'll be thinking undergrads at these other places they're thinking about both. Do you have funding, particularly external funding? What does your publication profile look like? Are you going to be a valuable researcher whose work synergizes with the program strengths and needs to also enable you eventually to get so-called tenure, like to be asked to stick around indefinitely? Um, so the research side will be highlighted in a place like UNLV or other R1s. And then the teaching also needs to be good. And ideally you have someone who can teach online and in-person classes, mindful of who the student body is. UNLV is a, one of the most diverse institutions in the United States. So that favors an ability to show you can communicate effectively and reach effectively students from every path of life, socioeconomically, ethnically, internationally, uh, and so forth. So increasingly we see like DEI statements even required yeah. or requested in, in applications for faculty jobs. And then the service part doesn't matter a whole lot at the start. That'll escalate later in the role. So um, those would be for like tenure track jobs. But I've also been on hiring processes in which we are hiring for like a teaching emphasis role in which the person would be teaching, say, four classes per semester. And research doesn't matter a whole lot there, except insofar as you might be able to fold in some of your research insights into a class setting to excite students. But, but the emphasis there can be on teaching. Those positions don't tend to pay as well. Yeah. Um, but they appeal to those who are really good at and can address the teaching needs within that ecology. Okay, so those are very helpful categories of what you're thinking about. So the research service you mentioned is smaller and then teaching abilities and the ratio of how much each of those categories matters depends on the type of role you're applying to and the type of school you're applying to. So for yes. you, what was the main focus in your process and the schools you were looking to work for? So when I got hired at UNLV, if I was not already a productive researcher at, out of the gates, I wouldn't have been hired. And that okay. was then, that was 17 years ago. And it's even more so now. I think it just got more and more competitive. It was competitive then, it's just gotten even more so. Uh, but no doubt the, the first part of, and what mattered most was research. And then secondarily, teaching. Okay. Service, that didn't matter a whole lot at that point. Uh, and the teaching, though, I'd had some experience as the teaching assistant or teaching fellow, Harvard called us. Uh, when I was in grad school, I'd done that uh, probably 10 semesters, I'm guessing, once on the teaching wards as a grad student, um, done grading. I thought, funny enough, I, in the process of leaving, I looked back and found one of my um, sheets of students I had my last semester who I graded. And one of those names is, I can't, I won't give the name. One of those people just jumped out like, oh my God, I actually graded that person's work. All of you would recognize that person's books in <laughs> Amazon or anyway, uh, I had no role, I'm sure, in sending that person to stardom. But um, <laughs> I had teaching experiences as, as a grad student, but it was in that context. I was advised when I was a postdoc those two years in Los Angeles to try to get to be the instructor of record. I actually have my own class where I was putting together the lectures, grading, uh, doing all that stuff with the course design myself. So I did that as well. I taught a, a UCLA evening class for three hours once a week. And that was a great experience. It was exhausting because I was already tired. So was everyone else. Um, but then I was a so-called instructor of record. 
that was also a good experience to then convey to the hiring committee that, look, I know you're fo focused on my research profile, but I also can step into a teaching role like with a large lecture course, whether in person or online, and be successful because I've done it as well. Right. You had all of those strengths in your resume in each category. So once you attain the job, how would you describe the roles and responsibilities that you had as a professor? Uh, in, in an R1, also other roles like a small liberal arts college with high research expectations or an R2 with, with pretty high research expectations, the research productivity has to be there if you're going to get tenure, if okay. you're hired in a tenure track uh, role. So the emphasis over the next five, six years before the tenure clock, but it's the tenure clock, as you say, uh, mm -hmm. as it's ticking and before you're up for that tenure review, uh, it will likely emphasize research. Uh, at a small liberal arts college, they may more equitably weigh the research versus the teaching. Like if you're a terrible teacher, that may actually have consequence, whereas you can be a, a terrible teacher and get away with it. Some other institutions, if the research is really tilted to research. Okay. And so what did your typical schedule look like trying to balance that pressure on research and also being a good teacher? I assume you are. <laughs> are. Uh, you're constantly thinking of research ideas. What are your next projects going to be? How can you involve students? Do you have collaborators with whom you're working? Uh, what kind of external funding are you seeking? Are you publishing your work? You know what the tenure clock ticking means that eventually you will be evaluated on things like research productivity with metrics like number of publications, the quality of those publications, how often those seem to have had impact like citations. Uh, how successful your students are, perhaps undergrads who might go on to other career success, including grad school, grad students who might leave, what kind of success do they have? So those are the kinds of things you're just constantly thinking about for research. So while the clock may say it's three in the morning, you're, you're maybe thinking of something awake in your bed about research, or it's three in the afternoon, you're sleepy, go get some coffee because you're thinking about <laughs> research too. And then the teaching you're also thinking about because you know you got to juggle all that. But the honest conversations, which you'll see on social media and career advice, are way how these things are going to be with respect to the consequences in the optimal use of your limited time. It's interesting because it sounds so similar to the traditional grading system in school. We go from your courses where you're tested to then a different type of grading system. But again, you're being evaluated on, you just gave the metrics for that. So it doesn't really go away. Even once you finally secure a job as a professor, there's still that pressure, right? Yes. Uh, and I put this out on Twitter recently and someone responded with exactly this point, Heidi. If this is not your life or world or what you crave, this is probably not for you because you will continuously, you will continuously be evaluated, assessed, and you'll feel terrible with all the rejections that pile up along with the along with the successes. But for all the successes of the most successful people, you might see their their CVs, you might see their um, their profiles on a website at a program to which you're thinking of for grad school as a way to get training to eventually ideally be a professor if that's your what you're, you're dreaming of. Um, you have no idea the detritus of rejections that were behind all of those successes. And you have to live with that stuff uh, because you are constantly submitting manuscripts for publication and getting varied responses. You're constantly submitting grants that are accepted, rejected. You're constantly being evaluated on your teaching. 
and students can say really kind things, they can say <laughs> awful things, and um, all of that is part of the game, and it never ends. So uh, even as you move up in rank, let's say you get tenure, you're still being evaluated on these kinds of things in all of those ways, and in ways never that ends. require a thick skin. Okay, and so pausing here to unpack a little bit more of the tenure, which you've mentioned, can you give an overview of the levels within teaching opportunities for moving up, including tenure? So uh, one contrast is between tenure track and non-tenure track positions. So like uh, uh, there, there are increasingly are these adjunct roles where someone might teach four or five classes, two or three institutions, maybe a mixture of online and in-person classes without benefits. Is that sustainable? Perhaps if you have a second income, perhaps if it's a passion project, uh, but for many people, they say this is not a viable niche within which to live a sustainable life. There are non-tenure track roles that are teaching intensive, including at increasingly research intensive institutions, almost like a dual professor track emphasizing the teaching. And those, if you're passionate about teaching, if you're good about teaching, those can be viable paths, mindful of the cost of living have gotten really expensive in a variety of places that make that a tough position because they do tend to pay less and they don't necessarily have the perk of the reliability of being around with tenure. Um, you might be contingent on whether or not your classes fill, whether or not you're meeting sort of student demand, in which case maybe you have to adjust the classes you teach to ensure you're meeting where that demand is. And then tenure is, um, again, you can Google all this stuff, but this is after typically five or six years being up for so-called tenure means you submit your materials, they're evaluated by external folks, external peers at other institutions whose expertise can be relevant to your typically body of research who then weigh in with external letters all done anonymously. That's part of the evaluation process in addition to meeting sort of internal tenure criteria of research teaching and to a lesser degree service criteria to see if you pass muster as it were to be moved to tenure, which is then more or less not quite permanent, but it, it, it's a it's a state status in which it's very difficult to remove you unless you do something egregious. Gotcha. And so for those metrics of getting tenure that you're being measured on, such as your publications and are you securing outside funding. How, what is the onboarding or training process like for a new professor? Is that assumed to have been taught to you in grad school or is there training when you become a professor? A lot of it is like, you probably won't get to some of those roles if you aren't already good at some of those things. So okay. it is assumed you're already pretty good at those things. Uh, at the same time, there can be additional resources like in an office of sponsored research that helps institute helps the institution support faculty research. They should be offering additional resources to help you with grant submissions, trainings, uh, those kinds of things. So there should be, and also like faculty mentorship programs. Increasingly, one would expect to see those kinds of things, but it's also variable depending upon the variable resources of the institution at which one's professing. Gotcha, thank you. And for you, between your 3 a.m. and 3 p.m., constant thinking about research projects, what was an average day like time-wise broken down between classes, doing your own work? Could you paint us a picture? Yeah, so the answer would be, this of course vary by institutional type and professor role variety already noted. Beyond that, it also varies by 
professor stage. So when I just started, I had young kids. My daughters now are 16 and 18. Uh, young kids, um, and there was the work-life trade-offs surrounding that. But but being a professor a lot, uh, provided a lot of flexibility in terms of when they were young, being able to pick them up after school, drop them off, uh, those kinds of things that I was very grateful for. Um, but uh, I would have maybe two classes a semester on a schedule around which you're preparing, um, delivering, grading, all of that, in addition to variety of meetings with students, grad students too, um, some service meetings like faculty meetings that might be weekly or, or recurrently, um, and a lot of just the research efforts that um, are, are inherently flexible though, like the hours are flexible. That, that tends to be one of the perks, I think. Mm -hmm. And then as you move on, like the last year, you know, 17 years later, as I resigned, <laughs> um, a lot of stuff had shifted remotely. Of course, COVID a big contributor to that. Uh, but the emphasis was increasingly on service because I'd already been, I'd been a full professor. So I got tenure in 2010, become a full professor in 2016 and was doing more service related work at the campus level, not the department level. And my research was driven more by the, the, the questions that students I advise, graduate and undergrad students were, were driven by as my own priorities in life had shifted where I was less driven by research questions for which I needed to demonstrate productivity for tenure. Mm. And just emotionally, I was more invested in the questions my own students had and supporting them. That was more emotionally rewarding. Um, and the teaching I've always enjoyed. Limited dosage though, a couple classes a semester I love. If you made me teach five classes a semester or like a high school teacher's schedule or, or my mom, a second grade teacher, I'm not sure I would do as well in those teaching contexts. Everything in moderation. <laughs> yes, yeah, so to your question though, the the day-to-day the -day varies by professor type and institution type, as well as what kind of professor stage you're at. And let's go with the beginning stage, for example, for you. Teaching two classes a semester, what was the breakdown in time between preparing to teach, grading, or your own research in a day? Uh, it's sort of split across the week. So you're always wearing three hats okay, or really two hats initially of research and teaching. The service hat gets bigger the longer you're in a role mm -hmm. of a professor. And um, let's say you have two classes that are Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, you know, no one wants to be there at that 8 a.m. class, right? <laughs> Had that uh, this morning. Yep. Can relate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You, so you know that. Um, uh, so a lot of your schedule is sort of built around what the teaching times of delivery are, knowing you need to do the lecture prep in advance, and maybe you make the notes available, you know, an exam's coming, you got to make sure the exam's ready to go, you have a review session. So all that stuff then is structured by what the, the semester by semester variation in the teaching delivery looks like. And then you build maybe the research um, around, or, you know, around the schedule that's driven first by, say, teaching, and then also other meetings as well. Okay. Thank you. And when you mentioned service, can you give us a few examples of what you mean by that? So early on, I didn't do much service. Uh, the expectation, again, is research, research, research. But the last year, as I was leaving, I was part of the campus leadership program in which you were partnered with, in my case, the vice provost of academic programs, Javier Rodriguez, to learn about some of the things his office does, like, like university accreditation. So you have these high-level strategic initiatives upon which you can or in, in, within which you can learn by doing experiential learning. 
And that stuff was really stimulating. Um, I wish, frankly, there were more opportunities for growth. I perceived I, I loved that kind of stuff at the because I'd moved beyond a department level that was driving me. I was more driven by institutional, so higher scale questions and collaborations. Um, I wish more opportunities had been available or I perceived would be available because I think I could have continued in a path if I felt like they had been. Um, so there was that kind of level. I was undergrad coordinator the last two years. I was a grad coordinator for three and a half years prior to that. As an undergrad coordinator, what did that entail? Uh, learning what undergrad pain points were with respect to advancing in a degree program, being prepared for um, for work like grad school or professionally beyond the completion of the degree programs, aligning that maybe with career services, professional development offerings, upon which we'd offered very little, and we knew that from student exit survey data. So uh, as a, in offering uh, on, you know, office hours, including virtually, um, so those were some of the service roles that I'd served in as I was winding down my professor job. That makes sense that it would be at the end of your time once you've already secured tenure, because as meaningful as those roles would be to help students and others, you clearly didn't have time to think about anything other than research when you're in that vulnerable pre-tenure position. And so can you give us some examples of things that you liked about the role and some challenges? Yeah, and here, Heidi, I would just underscore, I am not someone who at this point is gonna say, it is awesome, just do it. And I'm also not the person that this is a graveyard. <laughs> Don't go there unless you wanna die. Um, this has been a really meaningful 17 year career path. It's actually longer than that. If you six years in grad school, two years postdoc, 30 years I've invested in this. And uh, it's been really, really meaningful. Highlights, incredibly interesting people you're surrounded by and you get to engage with. That can be faculty peers, that can be other researchers, that can be folks within an institution that inspire you. Students, so another strike, students, 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 whether undergrad or grad, depending on the institution you're at. Students can also be huge frustrations when they're just grade grubbing, of course. Uh, but a lot of what drives professors in teaching context is the student light bulb, you know, in a sense that uh, we, we all love that. We, you probably didn't go into this with a teaching element if you didn't at least experience some of that yourself and you're willing and eager to share that with others. So another strength, the, the students. Um, compensation can be good relative to non, say, PhD professor roles. Yeah. Flip side of compensation, as I've learned, uh, through a lot of informational interviews in this exit process and what I'm is I'm figuring out things. Compensation for uh, someone with a PhD from a leading institution being a professor at a large state school with high inflation, you're falling way behind industry salary opportunities and compensation growth. And um, so salary is a two-way street. Depends on what your expectations are and what you're comparing it to. Um, but as far as some of the strengths, those were some of them. And I have no misgivings about having embarked on this and what it's meant, but it's been honestly pretty emotional to now be ripping the Band-Aid off of all the stuff, uncertain about what else I can do in life. But the world is now still your oyster and you have all this experience and you can do so much more and then come back and talk about whatever the new role ends up being. <laughs> You're always welcome back here. And well, thank so you. A few more questions. What characteristics you just mentioned, obviously you're working with 
students and the focuses, but what characteristics do you think are important to be successful in the role as professor? Uh, I would say, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, given how varied the role actually is, uh, that's one lesson of today's podcast. Given how variable the role of professor can be, there's all kinds of space within which that can be expressed. So more research intensive roles, more teaching oriented. Um, if you're more into service, there are all kinds of positions within higher education institutions that are not professor roles, but that might actually tap your skills and student services, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so that's maybe one part, one layer of an answer. Um, if you're not enjoying though the steps along the way, like in grad school and the competitiveness of what that is, like to get into a really strong program, to be productive and successful within that strong program, then I don't know that that's gonna scale to what'll be continuation of that competitive kind of process mm -hmm. as a professor. So maybe take that as a pulse along the course. Um, talk, talk with others. So talk with your professors if you're an undergrad, certainly if you're a grad student too, talk with your professors, not at the last second about what this course could look like so that beyond this podcast, you're thinking through all these things rooted in your own shoes to ask about whether or not this is going to be a path for you. Awesome. And anything else that you can give it to advice to others that you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out? Yeah, be informed. You have all kinds of resources that I didn't have by virtue of so much information available online, social media, and so forth. Be informed. Um, that's the first. Um, know what thing, like what are, what are the options if you, because to be a professor means you have to go to grad school. What else would you do if you're not successful being a professor or if your interests change? So many people say, I want to be a professor when I'm 21 and you get locked into something. But maybe when you're 26, you think I would rather go do something else. And maybe you're earning a doctorate in root. What else can you do with that doctorate? So some advice I would have is make sure you have a plan A, B, C, and D because it's so competitive. Like the statistics of PhDs, like the numbers who go into tenure track faculty jobs whether in biology, psychology, anthropology, humanities, the numbers are even worse. Um, it's, it's tiny. It's tiny. And the number of years of training, like postdoctoral training, just keeps going up because it's so impacted of a degree, of a professional track. So be mindful of having a plan A, B, C, and D accordingly so that you feel like even if you don't go the professor route with your graduate degree, you'll be happy with some of the other career path plan options available uh, to you. My own advice to my daughters, funny enough, is I just had a daughter uh, starting at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland this fall. Oh. Uh, she, she jokes, mom is an art history major at UCLA where she and I met, uh, you know, me and my anthro background. We, we but by some standards, we picked the two least helpful majors in life, <laughs> but we've had meaningful, rich lives. And part <laughs> of that is facilitate with a graduate degree. Um, but I would advise my own daughters, don't do this unless you would regret it. But if you would regret it, then give it your best shot and make sure you have a plan B, C, D, and so on. It's great advice. Think about it. Don't just jump without looking down. And if you think it's worth it, jump, but be ready to flap your wings as hard as you can to try to fly. Yeah, that's a helpful perspective because I do think it's not mentioned 
very often when people say, oh, you want to go into teaching? That's great. And few people talk about the implications of how competitive it's becoming. And so I do think a lot of people fantasize that a PhD or teaching is kind of a safe route as it's talked about in some circles without really evidence there. So thank you for giving the perspective of someone who has been through it and hopefully opening eyes to just how hard it is and it can totally be worth it. But those are really helpful insights. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, hi, as you can see, I'm smoking a pipe with my patch jacket. I'm kidding. The old school, I mean, this is really old school view of what a professor's life is like. It is nothing like that. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you. This has been delightful. Um, and I hope for the audience here, uh, again, as someone who's transitioning out of this role after a very, very long, meaningful experience in this role, finding it's quite painful in this professional transition, I still have lots of positive things to say about the role of professor at the same time I have reasons for wanting to head down a new path as well. So thank you, Heidi, though, for having me. Thank you.